was wonderful, Lindy. Certainly reminds us of our God in all of his glory, all of his power, all of his, his presence in our world, in every piece, in every piece of our life. It's a wonderful joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I love what this church is doing, and I love the ministry. I love the outreach. It is truly the kingdom of God on earth, and that's how many times we don't see that. Uh, we see just a church and people in it, but that's not the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God on earth is what happens here and what happens in the neighborhood and what happens beyond, and that's the active kingdom of God alive today. Uh, I just want to share with you a bit. I, I'm out and about, and uh, God is alive and well in this world, in case you didn't know it. And CNN and Fox don't generally report what God is doing. I just want to tell you today, there are one million Muslims coming to Jesus every year. And now we don't see that. We don't hear that. They don't report it. 75% are coming through visions and dreams. Now, how is this happening? It's very fascinating how God is not limited, in case you didn't know that, by political boundaries, geographical boundaries, religious boundaries. He is breaking through the subconscious of people. They're very, uh, very minds and souls. It's interesting, and it, with World Hope and the Wesleyan Church together, we're working in a little country called Azerbaijan. That's a country that's right uh, above Iran and sideways from Iraq. We've been there for the last 12 years. And it's interesting how God's opened the door in marvelous ways there. Uh, how, how this partnership happens is Global Partners sends the missionaries, but World Hope supports all the programming, and we can be in that country. It's a country that is against the law to proselytize in any way. It's a country with 8 million people with less than 1,000 believers. And uh, so we run computer schools. We've built schools for refugee children. In fact, the country... I, one day I got a call from uh, the president of the country who was in Washington and wanted to know if I would join him for lunch at the Mayflower Hotel along with uh, quite a few other people, of course, not just me, but other people working in Azerbaijan. So I wanted to go to that hotel. That's the one Monica Lewinsky stayed in, just in case you're interested. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I never could afford a meal there, so I thought, well, since, since they're going to pay for it, I'll go. Well, it was interesting because I got called forward to thank us this atheist president to thank us for what we're doing in the country. You see, it's the love of God, the deed, that people will hear the word. So I was at one of our cell groups one night there, and I thought, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, how do people know to come to these places? You know, there's no flashing light, there are no, no, no advertisements whatsoever. How do people know where the underground believers are meeting? So I said to this woman who was sitting beside me, I said, how did you know to come here? She said, well, I had this dream. And in this dream came this most compelling person. And I had to find out who it was. I could not get away from it. And finally, someone said to me, well, if you'll go to the seventh floor of such and such a building on Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, you can find out. And she said, I found out, and it was Jesus. Shortly after that, I was at the Lausanne Conference in Thailand, and Paul Eshelman of the Jesus Film was sharing that uh, they've shown the Jesus film, um, it, as we know, around the world has been and had incredible, incredible results. But in the Middle East, it's been a little shaky to sh show this film. And they were able to get an area and a city, and the city agreed, and they were able to get a, an, an auditorium. And that night, as that film began, about 10 minutes into that film, 
suddenly, 10 men from different parts of that auditorium all stood up at the same time and said, that's him, he came to my room last night. And all of them had had the same experience. Their room filled with light. They did not even know each other. Their room filled with light, woke them up, and there stood Jesus. Now, I thought it was interesting. It was the same Jesus that was on the film. (laughs) But you see, that's how they could recognize who this was. God is moving in some incredible ways. In northern Africa, Algeria, and I would like to say I've prayed for Algeria every day of my life. I've probably never prayed for Algeria, but praise God other people have. Algeria is a country we hear about, and many of Al-Qaeda cells are there, and it's a tough country. It's a Muslim country. A couple went in through Operation Mobilization. They were there 40 years. No converts. Now, if I would have probably been running it, I would have probably said, let's go someplace else. This isn't a productive field. This is a waste of our money. But praise God, I wasn't running it. <laughs> and, uh, and then their son came along, and some of this overlaps. Their son came along, and he had five converts, and they were all murdered. Their daughter and husband came along, and all the seeds that have been planted. Don't ever give up on the seeds that are planted. Today, there are 50,000 new believers among the Berber people in Algeria that spread on over into Morocco. People don't know what to do with all these new believers and in the country. And, and if the Berber people were the, were the people group from St. Augustine, one of our early church fathers. And the God is moving and growing in incredible ways in these people and what's happening all across northern Africa. No, that's never been reported in the news. But you see, there's another news going on underneath what we all see is our Lord at work. This morning, just 11 and a half hours ago, your brothers, your Wesleyan brothers and sisters in Pakistan would have worshipped today. The, the, it's crazy. India and Pakistan, the time difference is 11 and a half hours. I don't know how they got that half. But anyway, 11 and a half. And you have 15,000 Wesleyan brothers and sisters in the country of Pakistan. So when you see that on the news, pray for your brothers and sisters. I've been there many times. And when I first went there back in 1997, it was... Excuse me. But today, all of our brothers and sisters worship with armed guards at the door for their protection so that they can worship without... Uh, being shot at. But you know what? It hasn't stopped the church growing. And they have added more churches and more churches and more people coming to Jesus and more people coming to Jesus. And it has to be done in a very, very different kind of way in which we do. But they continue to grow. Pray for them. Those are your brothers and sisters. It's been interesting to me, just as I've been out and about in our own country. A few weeks ago, I was down in North Carolina at a church in, this is a little town in North Carolina that's still very racist. But do you know what? God's called a young couple that had just graduated from seminary to go and live in the midst of the African-American community. Not to go in there and tell them we're going to change everything, but just to live there. And God is moving in their living there. It's what we refer to as the incarnational gospel. It's living it out. They've been able now to connect a white church, a Wesleyan church that's been there, and they now are beginning to have fellowship back together. And I, when I was there, 
There was a man that I think probably at some point along the line had been a part of the KKK. But he stood up with tears running down his coarse face, and he said, I want to tell you people, God has delivered me from racism. Is that not a deliverance? It's been thrilling to me just to see where God is working in our midst, and he's working here, and I love it. Last September, I was invited to give a paper. This is a very fascinating paper. uh, At the side event for the United General Assembly of the United Nations in Washington, D.C. It was a side event, an interfaith event on global poverty. So they invited me to give this paper entitled... Um, a, perspective, a theological perspective uh, on global poverty from a Wesleyan initiative. I mean, the title was longer than the paper, actually. But they wanted to, so it was not hard, because as we as Wesleyans, that's where our roots are, right? Out of those very kinds of things. Now, last year at General Conference, the Wesleyan Church adopted a very fine position paper on global poverty. I also distributed that to this group, and it was fascinating because the executive director of the U.S. Catholic bishops came up to me and he said, that paper is so excellent, I want an electronic copy of that to send to every U.S. Catholic bishop in the United States. Now, who would think? Wesleyans influencing Catholics. Our paper, position paper on immigration that was adopted at the last general conference was wildly accepted, and the vineyard uh, uh, denomination, I guess there are now, the vineyard church accepted that as their position paper, picked it up, said, we like this, we want to take this. It was presented last October to a group of denominations. I was just at a meeting in um, Philadelphia a few weeks ago and uh, of evangelicals and Catholics together, and the person presenting a paper on immigration referenced our paper. Now, friends, we talk about God's helping us to influence uh, many, many people, and I'm humbled by that. Uh, but, he, but he's calling us to lead in this world. I truly believe that. Well, it was fascinating as I gave that paper that day, a theological perspective from a Wesleyan um, thought, or from the Wesleyan perspective, um, reflection. Actually, the title was A Theological Reflection on global poverty from a Wesleyan perspective. That's right, I'll get my words right here in a minute. And as I was giving that paper that day, it was the first $700 billion bailout that was happening just down the street. I was just down the street from Wall Street. It was just down the street, right by the UN. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, first of all, number one, two-thirds of the world, the two-thirds world, the developing world, lives on four to $500 a year. That's a dollar a day or more. And in this economic crisis, two th- first of all, two-thirds of that money that they earn goes for food. It goes for grain, rice, wheat, whatever that may be that's needed in your culture. Two-thirds of the income goes for that. And in our economic difficulties, all of those food prices have doubled. So what has happened ha- has been we have added 100 million more hungry people to our world. Now, that doesn't mean they won't have a candy bar. That means they could die from hunger. 
And I thought as I was sitting there that day, and it was interesting, the Wall Street Journal was there that day in that meeting, and they were there all day, which is interesting. But I, I thought as I was sitting there that day, where would Jesus be if he were here? With the bailout? Or with the poorest of the poor? I somehow felt he was with us that day, speaking on behalf of the poorest of the poor in this world who didn't know if they were going to have life. Well, I'm going to depress you even more. I want you to read these things with me. Let's take a look at where our world is today. Read these statistics with me. 100 million street children, 14 million AIDS orphans. Let me just stop a minute. Every 14 seconds, a child is orphaned by AIDS in our world. Every day, 8,000 people die. Next one, 27 million slaves. That means slaves. They are bought and sold like cattle for the purposes of labor, sex, begging, and body parts. Unemployment, 7.2%. That's the national one, but I think in California it's 10%, someone told me this morning. And the next one, and in some cities, as high as 25%. That's 25% is over in eastern Michigan, around the Detroit area. But I want to tell you something about what your brothers and sisters are doing over in Detroit area. Their unemployment's 25%. But guess what the Wesleyan Church over there has decided to do? They're going to plunge. I call it the Detroit plunge. They're getting ready to make a big plunge into the inner city of Detroit, where, where houses are crumbling and gangs are taking over and everything else. And they're getting ready to go in there, and they're working with people that are already there. I'm not saying they're going in as the great saviors. They're partnering together to bring the gospel of hope in a place that is so dark. But isn't that where God calls us, to the dark places? His light is the brightest in the dark places. 13 million U.S. children hungry. All right, read it with me. 100 million unchurched people in the United States. 800 million hungry people worldwide. 4 million housing foreclosures in the United States. 1 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean they've had a choice. They have never heard his name. That's hard for us to wrap our brains around it. When you turn on television here, at least in Southern California, and you've got all these religious channels and everybody's talking about God and you've got all of this, but how can it be that someone has never heard Jesus' name? I kind of got my head wrapped around that a bit on the first time I went to Cambodia. The way you get around it at, at 10 or about 12 years ago, the way you got around Cambodia was on the back of a motorcycle. And I had just flown into Phnom Penh, and I was to go someplace else, and they were putting me on this motorcycle, and somebody's talking to the driver and saying, you know, do, this is where she's going in, in the Khmer, in the language there. And I'm sitting, and I had a dress on, and you have to, women had to wear a dress. At that time, you can wear pants now, but at that time, you had to wear a dress. And I'm sitting on this motorcycle saddle and trying to figure out what to do with the other foot. You ever thought about that? No, do it this way? No, let's try this foot. Let's try this one. I'm fiddling around, and suddenly the guy takes off, and I grabbed him with all that I had because I'm flying down the streets of Phnom Penh uh, very fast. Well, he dropped me off at the place, and like he was going to leave with, it, with no money, and I was trying to pay him, and he, I what in the world? This is very weird. I come to find out I made my first cultural faux pas. 
and that is you're never to touch the man unless he's your man. And he was not my man, and I certainly was not his woman, and he was highly shamed as he went down the streets of Phnom Penh with his American woman laying on his back. The next day, he never came back. I never had, I never had the driver again. And uh, so a new driver came back the next day, and he spoke a little English. And so he was trying to tell me, he said, well, this is the palace, and he was trying to give me a little tour. I thought, I wonder if he knows who Jesus is. I thought, I'm just going to try this. And I said, do you know Jesus? And he looked very blank, but I do know that that is a given name in the Philippines and that part of the world. And so I said, Jesus Christ. Finally, you know, you want to laugh at first, except this is where you really get it, when they've never heard. He was so troubled, and finally we stopped at a place, and he turned to me and, you know, took his ball cap off and kind of scratched his head, and he said, Ma'am, I am so sorry, but I don't know where he lives. You see, he had never heard Jesus' name, Jesus Christ. He thought I wanted him to take me to Jesus' house. That's the first day I wrapped my brain around the fact of people who have never heard Jesus' name. But I'm here to tell you today that in the last 12 years in Cambodia, we now have 100,000 new believers who are Christians in this country. So I'm thrilled to give you that information. 1.3 billion Muslims. Well, I want to tell you, now that you're very depressed and you want to say, forget it, I want to go home and put, go, get in my Snuggies and watch Grey's Anatomy tonight and forget about all this. <laughs> you watch Grey's Anatomy if you want. But I want to tell you, I want you to look at this next verse. Jesus has the audacity in the midst of all of this to say these words. Read them with me. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now this is audacious. These are ridiculous words in the midst of all of this. And don't you know that it seemed ridiculous also to the disciples when they heard this? Because this is the context of the disciples. And this is right before Jesus' uh, crucifixion, an appropriate time for today. And the disciples are trying to say one more time, are you really the Son of God? Are you really the Son of God? And Philip, Philip, I mean, he's one I didn't think was going to be much of a doubter, but Philip is doubting. And he's saying to Jesus in in these verses preceding this, can you really tell me that you are the Son of God? I, I I just have to know this one more time. And can't you see here the pathos of even in Jesus' words when he finally says, Philip, I've been with you all this time. This is Jesus about relationship with us. I've been with you all this time and you still can't believe? And then finally Jesus kind of gives up and says, well, Philip, if you can't, then just believe on the evidence of the miracles. And then Jesus says these very words right after that. Then he's, can't you imagine those disciples saying, what in the world is he talking about? The first line says, I'm here to tell you, you're going to do what I've done. Now that's enough in itself. And then Jesus adds another level. And he says, you're going to do even greater things than I have done. 
Because I'm going to the Father. What does that mean, because I'm going to the Father? You see, you'll find that a few chapters later, Jesus is talking to his disciples after the resurrection and right before the ascension. And in John, the 20th chapter, it says Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This was a prelude to what was going to happen at Pentecost, the breath of God. But I want to tell you, when you go back through the scriptures and you begin to look at the breath of God, look at Genesis. God breathed on the earth, on the chaos of the universe. And what happened? Creation happened. And God spoke. And God said, it is good. And then we find dry bones in Ezekiel. And God breathed on these dry bones. And he said, God spoke and said, this is life. And then we see Jesus came along and Jesus was baptized and coming out of those waters, God breathed and he spoke and God said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And then we see all the ministry of Jesus throughout the rest of those, these wonderful books of the New Testament, of the Gospels. Then, death, resurrection, as we experienced this week. And then he tells his disciples, look, there's a room I want you to go to, and I want you to stay there until, I tell, until something happens. And they went. Now, I found it interesting that hundreds followed Jesus, but only 120 finally had the courage to go up and, and, and obey him and be in that upper room. And I don't think in that upper room they played crazy eights. They went up to that room, and they had interpersonal relationship problems with each other that they had to work out. And they, because, you know, they were fighting and they were all, all kinds of things were happening at the death and resurrection of Christ. And they still couldn't believe it. But in that time, they got their interpersonal relationships worked out and they also got focused on why we're here. And suddenly, on that day, here came the breath of God like they'd never seen before. The power, the mighty wind that came through that place and fire sat on their heads and purified them. Now, did they stay in that room and say, we just love each other so much? Isn't this great? We're just going to be so cozy. We're just going to stay here and love each other. No, the first thing they did is they went out from those locked doors, out to the people that they didn't like, out to people that they had prejudice against, out to the people that they never wanted to speak to, and they were afraid of them. But what did they do? They spoke. And since that time, my friends, we have been speaking. He said, I'm putting my spirit in you, and you will now speak. God is not thundering out of heaven anymore, his words. He's thundering those words and living them through us. His spirit in us, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how we will do greater things than he has done. It's because of his spirit in us. Then you follow that, and there's one line, and when you follow that next text that comes after this, he says, you're going to do greater things than I have done because I'm going to the Father, and he doesn't miss a beat, and he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Father may be glorified. Now, I find it interesting in this, this discourse of Jesus, he uses the word ask Seven times, just in this discourse alone. Ask. What does it mean to ask? I've heard people say to me, well, I don't ask the Lord for much. I just praise him. 
Well, I began to take a look at that, and Richard Foster brings this out quite wonderfully in his book on prayer. And he talks about asking. Asking is about a relationship. Let's put it in our family life. If my kids just praise me all the time, and believe me, I'd like to hear it once in a while. But if they just praise me all the time, I would never know who they are or what's going on in their head. Think about it. This new baby that was born, that baby's cried, I'm sure. And all of us remember those first nights and first weeks with the baby. You don't sleep. You're, you lose your mind on what's going on around you because of all the lack of sleep and the crying. We have four children, all in five and a half years. We were kind of busy all the time. And when that first baby came, when she cried, we were there to change her diapers. We were there to see if she needed something to eat. She was asking. I laughed and said, by the time the fourth one came along, if he didn't cry, I'd have probably forgotten to change his diapers and feed him. But asking. And as those children grew and they began to talk, you ask, they ask. You begin to know what's going on in their head when they ask. And you respond. And you have conversation. And you grow together. And as your children become adults, there's still that asking and that conversation that takes place. And I know them very, I know them quite well, but I'm still learning who they are, too. They're still learning who I am. It's a constant growing relationship. That's the relationship our Lord wants with us. The ask. Well, when I started World Hope 13 years ago, believe me, I had no idea where God was going to lead. I had a plan, of course, as some of you heard yesterday, but God continues to open new plans. And in this process, I have done a lot of asks. And that's how things get done. But I, want, I could share with you many asks, but I want to share with you this morning uh, an, an incredible ask. I mentioned to you that I was in Cambodia during that time, the first 1996, actually, it was one of my first trips. When I got there, Jim Lowe, who was the missionary there, said to me, Joanne, You've just got to go out and see this. I don't even know what it's called, but it is breaking our hearts. So he took me out to this long, dusty road where he said a few years ago there had been 3,000 children, but today there were 15,000 children. And we started walking that, down that long, dusty road, and here were wooden structures with children, sitting, children and young women sitting on the front porches for sale. We walked, and I snapped a few pictures, and a pimp came after me, and I decided I'd better stay out of that photography business. Uh, and actually, that night, I got some folks, and we went in on a motorcycle and put a, a camera between us like this so that we could have a movie camera and just kind of be able to film that as we went by to verify what we were seeing. That was before the word modern-day slavery. That was before the word human trafficking. Nobody even had invented those words yet. And I remember talking with, an, with the head of World Relief in, in uh, Cambodia. He said, Joanne, I think this is what World Hope is supposed to do here. I thought, World Hope? We don't have anything. I mean, it's just me and a computer and a desk. And take on an industry like this? This is totally ridiculous. Well, our hearts were so broken. I had two other women with me on that trip. And as we stopped, we finally, we didn't even make it to the end of, of, the, of the road. It was just absolutely too overwhelming, and then it got a little dangerous. This was in the morning, also, in the middle of the day. Here were these young women and children. And I remember we stood on this corner. We were broken. Jim Lowe was crying. 
And so we stood there and held hands on this corner and prayed. We asked God, the ask, Lord, this seems so overwhelming. What in the world do you want us to do? Now, I'm telling you, these were three old ladies and a broken-down missionary. That's not very powerful. That next day, we looked around, and there were, we went up to another town and thought, well, we can maybe help these people. Uh, one of the women with me said, I, I've got some money. Let's help this family. Give them money to start a business so they won't have to sell their children. Just a little, few little things like this. That day, that ask. Year went by. Two years went by. I wrote a story about it. Had a picture, that little blurry picture that I had. Next year, I mean, I just knew, knew it was happening, but wh- what do you do? There's th- nothing. Six months or eight months later after that article, a woman called me and she said, I cannot get away from that story that you wrote. Is there anything that can be done? Now, isn't this interesting because we'd ask on that corner. And I said, well, I don't know. It's pretty overwhelming. Well, I want to send you some money. She said, well, I'm always ready to take money. And... Uh, So she said, if you could see, if you could do something with this. And I knew, I thought about that corner where we'd done the ask. And I went, I said, yes, we can. And so she sent the money. And I sent some of the staff over. And I said, don't think we're going to come in this country and cure it all. See who's already doing something and join them. See what we can do together. And so they did. And we found some people who were doing some things. And we began to work with them. It wasn't long. We moved to Washington, D.C. then, and then suddenly the world is taking up on this, and the State Department puts in a whole new division of the State Department called the Trafficking in Persons Division. In fact, they have an ambassador in charge of that whole division and had a bunch of money in that division. And so I thought, well, we're doing a little bit. I ought to go down and meet these folks. So I went down to the State Department, started meeting the people, started making connections. God just began to open up doors like I never dreamed. I go back to that street corner. Three old ladies and a broken-down old missionary. That's weak. But God said his strength will be made perfect in our weakness and in the ask. It wasn't long until the State Department started contacting us and saying, what are you doing? We need help in such and such a place, and we'll give you a grant here, and we'll give you a grant here, and we need help in Sierra Leone and Liberia, and we need help in South Africa, and can you help us, and et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't long, and I was back in, in the country several times in Cambodia, and it wasn't long until we became the lead people in the work in the anti-trafficking business in that country and in some other countries. Ask. And then I, we, our staff, we, we ended up putting on staff who knew this, and we had people coming to us who were experts in this area, and with a heart for God, and God began to open doors like we never dreamed. Ask. Probably the person that impacted me the most was a young woman. Her name, Sri. Sri was 15 years old when she was married, lived in the rural area of Cambodia. One day her husband said to her, I want to take you to the city. She was thrilled. She'd never been to the city before. She's illiterate. So they got to the city. They checked in at a guest house. Her husband said, 
I'll be right back. She went on to the room. Her husband, she waited an hour, two hours, three hours. Her husband did not return. Finally, she went down to the owner of the guest house and said, where is my husband? The owner of the guest house said, your husband is gone. He sold you to me for $200. This is a brothel, and I now own you. Sri was in that brothel for four years. She said while she was there, she prayed to find the real God. Now, she'd been raised a Buddhist. It's a Buddhist country. But isn't this interesting? There's something within us to find the real God. Prayed to find the real God. One night, miraculously, and she suffered intensely humiliation, and if she didn't do what uh, they wanted her to do, the owners and whatever, electric shock would be used, and she would be starved of beatings and all kinds of horrendous things. But one night, miraculously, she escaped. And it's a, it's a real miracle because these brothels are generally cemented in the back, and the only way out is through the front. But she escaped. And she went to that first home that the woman sent the money for that we had. And this was a home where she was welcomed. Now, we also have an assessment center there where young, women, young girls under the age of 15 who are rescued from the brothels or from the streets are brought to us. And we've had over 400 between the ages of 2 and 15 brought to us in the last four years. But she went to this, this home that is open that they know about. She was welcomed. She was loved. And soon she found the real God. She found Jesus and loved Jesus intensely like I've never seen anyone love Jesus. Two years later, I was at this home. And we were working together. And she was trying to teach me how to spin cotton and weave a rug. Now, to spin, you sit on this little can about that tall. I kept falling off because I'm too tall and too fat. Oh, I kept falling off all the time. And she would put her hand over on me and just laugh and laugh. And I looked into her beautiful face where literally, I never could capture the light on my camera, but literally, literally the light of Jesus flowed from her face. It was a very bony face because she weighed only 58 pounds dying of AIDS. She was wonderful, and we had a great time. But on that same trip, I got a call from the U.S. Embassy in Cambodia, and they said, the ambassador from the State Department is here in town, and he would like to know if you'd like to have breakfast with him. And I thought, well, I'd love to. But I also want to bring all the other people that are working in faith-based groups. I want him to see what God's people are doing in this country. So he said, sure, I could do it. I mean, after all, your tax dollars, U.S. government's paying for it. So we had breakfast. And then he said, and he loved the people that were there, And he said, well, I'd like to go out and see what some of you were doing. And I love that, too, because I want him to see what God's people, faith-based people, were doing in this country. And so he did. And he chose White Lotus. And he went to White Lotus. And he said to me, is there some way I can hear some of these young women's stories? And I said, I asked the people who ran it, and they said, yes, but with dignity, you don't just blurt out these stories. They're still very shameful. So he took them to different rooms. Well, they happened to select three for her to give her story. It was fascinating. On the way back to the hotel, I was riding with him, and he had tears in his eyes, and he said, her story really impacted me. And I thought this is interesting because her story is not that, I could tell you tragedy and torture stories that would turn your stomach upside down. 
But there was something about her, you see. You know what it was? It was the power of Jesus. Greater things will you do because the Holy Spirit is in us. Two months later, Sri passed away. I, actually, uh, they had told me when I was there, they had taken her to the doctor just to help her dying become easier to a Buddhist doctor. And at the end of that, uh, her, her shots, they were giving her vitamin shots and whatever, she looked up at that Buddhist doctor that day, and she said, I love Jesus with all my heart. And the light and the power of Jesus flowing through this young woman illiterate, used in the worst ways you can imagine. And that day, that Buddhist doctor put his head on her tiny little shoulder and started crying and said, I want to know your Jesus. This is the power of the Spirit in us. Well, she passed away. So I thought, well, I'll just call the ambassador and tell him that she passed away. I don't know whether he even remembers. So I called him down to the State Department. He was quiet and silent on the other end, and he said, she really impacted me. Well, it was interesting, a couple months later, I got a call one Sunday night, again from the State Department, and they said, we're having a big uh, 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 conference, the salute to the 21st century abolitionist. We're going to have it on Thursday, and, and I had planned to go, and they said, we see you're on the list to be able to be here. Half the cabinet's going to be here, there are several hundred people. But Condoleezza Rice is going to speak, and two congressmen are going to speak, and the ambassador, and we just feel like we need a prayer. Could you come and pray? Now, that's a very unusual request in Washington. And so I said, well, sure, I'll be glad to come and pray. So I went to that event. I prayed. Condoleezza Rice spoke. Two congressmen spoke, and the ambassador. And he started telling about all the stuff he's done all over the world and whatever. He's a wonderful man, and he's done a lot. And I was kind of looking at my watch. When is this going to be over? i got something else to do here today. And suddenly he ended, he said, but I want to conclude with a person who's impacted me the most. And then I fell out of my chair, almost. He said her name, Sriman, from the White Lotus home in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And he started telling her story. My friends, that day as I sat in the Benjamin Franklin room, very elegant, all the history of the United States and everything else there, hundreds of people, and power, the most powerful people in the world. And this young woman's story is told. I thought, the power of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, can literally pierce and, and persuade the heart of the most powerful, from the weakest person in the world to begin to persuade the most powerful. You see, that is our God. That is greater things will he do through you because the Holy Spirit comes in you. We, even, we just barely touch the hem of the power of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do through us. I think of that passage in Amos, where the prophet Amos in 5 or 8 B.C. said, Let justice roll like a river, and righteousness that's holy living like a never-failing stream. That means it's alive in us. The Holy Spirit is alive in us, 
and it's bringing justice and righteousness and hope and peace to a troubled, dying world that we're seeing all around us. That is our God, the greater things he wants to do. This morning, as we celebrate communion, and we realize the power that is in repentance is in forgiveness, and we realize that this is a table that is for everyone. No one is excluded from the table. You know, when we have guests and you add on the table, somebody shows up that's unexpected, you know, you start dividing those baked potatoes so that they can be more. That's our Lord with more and more and more at his table. It's an honor for me this morning to say to you today one more time accept his bread and his blood his body and his blood and I'm asking you this morning this is the ask I'm asking you as we celebrate this this morning I want you to do a personal ask. What is your ask? What is your ask that God wants to do through you? And then I have a second ask, Pastor, and that is the corporate ask. What is the ask of Neighborhood Fellowship Church in this city? There's an ask that God wants to do that you still haven't even discovered. And you're much more powerful than those three old ladies and that broken-down missionary. God wants to do through you. So I'm asking this morning that this particular communion service have those asks, the personal ask and the corporate ask. This is the body of our Lord. When we think about what he went through this week, the brokenness, the bruised, the beatings, all that he went through for us, take this and remember him.
this bread today. Remember that there are millions around the world today who are also taking this bread. And we belong to one body. And God wants to do and is doing much through his body. And as you ask, remember, there are millions that are asking also for his glory. Eat and remember him. This is his blood. His blood that was shed for us. And I'm here to say that this is the blood of Christ that goes deeper than our familial blood or our ethnic blood or our tribal blood. It is the blood that binds us together as his people in this world today. against you in any way in this last week, these last weeks. Because we want to drink worthily of this cup. We repent to you ways in which we've slighted people even, 
We ask that you would bring to our mind things that we do need to repent of, that we may have a clean hands and a pure heart. And as we drink this cup, we, Lord, accept your forgiveness. And we stand before you celebrating only the forgiveness that you can bring, only the redemption that you can bring, and only the hope that you bring in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Drink. Well, thank you, Dr. Lyon. Thank you for your message today, and thank you for telling us the power of Jesus in ways that we uh, are yet to discover. And one of the ways that we do that is through communion together and also through our monthly missions march. The children always lead us. They've been saving their nickels and dimes and dollars all month long, and this money goes to do exactly what uh, Dr. Lyon talked about. It goes to spread the gospel and to feed people and to empower our missionaries around the world and locally. So as the children come, remember our challenge. Uh, simply a dollar a day per family, that adds about seven or $8,000 a year through this congregation to give to missions and to outreach around the world. That much money out of a simple discipline of giving a small amount that God multiplies many times over. So as the children